I'm glad to be back with you. Um, appreciate very much over the last couple weeks, um, TJ preaching and last week Jonathan preached for us. Really appreciate those guys and uh, appreciate y'all allowing me to have the opportunity to go to New Guinea. It was an amazing trip. Um, uh, our memory is very important, isn't it? For a lot of reasons. And I read a story recently, it happened a few years ago, where a, a guy, when he was, this was in Germany, and uh, he was 56 years old at the time. I think this was in 2007. And he parked his car um, near um, a, uh, uh, a building, and he got out and went somewhere kind of far away to walk. And when he came back, he couldn't find his car. And so he reported his car stolen or missing, and uh, they never found it. For 20 years, he thought that his car was just gone. Somebody stole it, and they never recovered it. Well... In 2017, there was a, a construction crew getting ready to demolish this uh, building and this um, parking lot to make room for something else. And they said, we have this car that's been sitting here. It looks like it's been sitting here quite a while. <laughs> so they look up the police reports and found out that, sure enough, there was a report made back in 2000, uh, 1997 by a man, and now he's 76 years old, so... Him and his daughter went to get it, and the report said, and the car wouldn't start. Hard to believe after 20 years <laughs> it wouldn't start. Now, I say all that because remembering is a very important part of our life, isn't it? To remember things, and we forget things a lot. We forget where we put our cell phone, our keys. We forget certain dates, and we get so overwhelmed sometimes. But remembering is very important, not only physical things, but spiritual things we need to be reminded of spiritual things because we can easily forget those things as well so speaking of that do you remember the first time you took communion or the lord's supper can you remember the very first time can you remember your age do you remember the place do you remember maybe who was with you when you took that first communion or maybe where was the most unusual or most memorable place that you've ever taken communion or the Lord's Supper. And what made that special? Was it the place? Was it the event? Was it the special service that you took communion? Or was it just the participation in communion itself that made it special for you? Do you remember the most recent time of communion? Well, Craig, that was last week. Well, what do you remember about last week's communion? Now, as I ask and I fire all those questions at you, that may get all of our hard drives kind of getting into gear right now, trying to think about all those questions I just asked. But as you can tell today, we're going to explore in our series called Why. We're going to talk about why communion. Why is communion important? And why do we do it every week here at Southwest? And remembering is an essential function for us to take communion each week. We're remembering a lot of things as we take communion and for many of us have been part of a faith tradition that you grew up in and so you are aware of what communion is even if you didn't take it every single week but you understand that Jesus mandated this new covenant in his blood he established that with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed in the night that he before he was going to the cross he says this is a new covenant in my blood and so that was where it came from but it's probably different in most of our faith traditions, not about what it means and, and what it stands for, but when do we do it and how often we do it, and maybe sometimes even how we do communion. Some call it the Lord's Supper, some call it communion, some call it the Holy Eucharist, which 
that word actually means in Greek, thanksgiving, the holy thanksgiving. And the frequency, the frequency of when we take it has varied for different traditions throughout history. And a lot of y'all know, and maybe if you're visiting here today, you don't know that, but we take communion every week here at Southwest. And we practice participating in that. And we also do it on special occasions that we remember, like on Christmas Eve, remembering the birth of Jesus, on Good Friday, where we remember the death of Christ, and certainly on Resurrection Sunday. So why do we do that? Why do we practice communion as a part of our worship every Sunday? Well, I've shared about our faith tradition here as part of what we call the Restoration Movement, which seeks to restore those elements of that first century church that we read about in the Acts of the Apostles that were recorded by Luke. What did we see in Acts? What did we see in that first century that the church did that we can restore to our 21st century? So I want us today to look back on several texts that give us the biblical reasons why we take communion and kind of when they did it and hopefully give us some, uh, some idea of why we do what we do. And communion is this spiritual union of bringing myself together with Jesus as an individual, but every Sunday we do that as a group, don't we? And we're not the only ones. There's people all over the world that gather and have gathered throughout history to break bread. That's another term that we see in the New Testament of telling us about what com communion is. So we're going to look at several uh, references today. We find references um, to in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke of Jesus instituting this. And interesting, the, the gospel of John does not specifically mention like um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, but John spends more time talking about Jesus last night with the disciples than any of the other gospel writers, but he doesn't specifically mention this communion time. But I'm going to read from Luke 22, and this is probably a familiar passage. We read this a lot before communion. You've heard this probably a lot. But this is from Luke's gospel, chapter 22, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 20. It says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And a lot of times we refer to table during communion, and that's why. This is they were at a table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again of it. I will not eat again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So it may be a familiar passage, but this is where we get our mandate for doing communion. This is where we get it, and this is what Jesus did with those 12 guys. And it, it blows my mind to think that doing that with those 12 guys that night, 2,000 plus years later, we're still doing it. It was that important. It's been passed on from generation to generation so that we still practice that important thing that Jesus established. Next, I want us to look at this practice by the early Jesus followers, again in the account of Acts of the Apostles and Paul's letters from the New Testament. And again, that phrase called breaking bread is the most frequently used term that we see in the New Testament. And Jesus, as you saw in that passage, he broke bread. And it was unleavened bread. It wasn't fluffy, nice bread. You know, it was that unleavened bread without yeast. And so it, it just broke and Jesus handed it to his disciples. That's why they refer to it as the breaking of bread. 
So right after the day of Pentecost, which we read about in Acts 2, we remember Peter gave this incredible sermon, and more than 3,000 people that day accepted Jesus and became Jesus followers. Well, what were they supposed to do now that they were Jesus followers? What, what did they practice? What do you do? I'm a Jesus follower. Now what? There weren't necessarily churches established. There was no New Testament yet. So how did they get together, and what did they do when they did as followers of Jesus? Well, in verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to these things, the apostles' teaching, which was probably oral tradition, and to the fellowship, that means they got together, and to the breaking of bread, coming together and remembering the Lord's Supper together, and to prayer. That's what they did. And then in Acts 20, which is 20 chapters later, and between that chapter 2 and chapter 20, there's all these missionary journeys that Paul and other of the apostles go on, and they're taking the name of Jesus, just like Jesus told them in the Great Commission to do. They did that. They were starting churches. And again, as they started churches, people practiced these things of coming together, breaking bread, having fellowship and prayer, and the apostles' teaching. They were doing these in these new churches. So it seems implied, I'm going to read from uh, uh, Acts 20. It says, and Paul is at Troas at this time. may not know exactly where that is, but this is one of the places where he established a church. And he says, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. He's saying this was a practice. It was already established. So we did that. While I was at Troas, that's what we did. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Now, I would encourage you to read the rest of chapter 20 because it's kind of funny. Somebody fell asleep during um, Paul's sermon and actually fell out of a window dead. Why are you? You're about to laugh, weren't you? No, but, but Paul went down and laid his body on him and was able to recover him. But it, it's interesting. I just think that's funny they put that in there that somebody fell asleep during the sermon. So it happens. Okay, hopefully nobody will fall out today. Okay. Um, but that was a practice. So from these verses, it seems implied that this was the pattern for these new groups of Jesus followers to come together on the first day of the week, which we understand is Sunday, to break bread. Sunday was the day that Jesus resurrected, so that's why they came together on that day. In the places where Paul and others helped establish churches, this seemed to be the practice that was practiced in that first century, and so that's why we continue to practice it today on the first day of the week. Now, we can also connect the dots about some other things about communion in Paul's letters to the churches that he started. And in, Cor in Corinth, he wrote two letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, because Corinth had a lot of issues, and Paul had to address a lot of things. So he wrote two letters to them. But in that first letter, Paul addresses specifically things that are happening around communion in this church. And so I want to read those for you this morning. And the first is in chapter 10 of Paul's first letter where people were taking the Lord's Supper and saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a Jesus follower. I'm going I'm to come to these meetings and I'm going to take that communion. I'm going to participate with it with my brothers and sisters. But he says, what I'm seeing is, is some of y'all, after the first day of the week, you're going down the street to these other temples in Corinth and you're participating in all their rituals too. And Paul's going... That's not the way it is. When you become a follower of Jesus, you bury that old life. You don't go back to that old life. You've buried that. It is dead now, and now you are a new creation in Christ. So you can't keep doing those old things and be a follower of Christ. So listen to what he says, starting in verse 14 of chapter 10. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf. We who are many 
are one body, for we, shall, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So Paul is very specific here at him. He goes, y'all can't keep doing that. Now, I want to share something. And obviously, because I've been in New Guinea, a lot of things happened that are still on my mind. So Martha Wade, our missionary there, one day she did a lot of medical attention to people. Every day she does that. And people come to her. But she knows for, after being there for 40 years, what these people, their patterns over the years. And so some people still in those villages have what's called a shaman, kind of like a witch doctor. And people go to the shaman because they're very afraid of all these evil spirits that are around. And they think sometimes when they get sick that it's an evil spirit casting some kind of spell on them. So they will go to this shaman and try to get him to give them a spell that will get this, this sickness out of their life. And Martha has tried to tell them that God is stronger than any of those evil spirits. And there's things called diseases, and I have medicine. God has brought me here and brought medicine that I can give it to you and will help you, but they still go to see these shamans. Sometimes they'll go to him and it doesn't work, and then they come back to her. And she was getting on to somebody going, you're still doing it. And I didn't understand what they were saying, but she explained it later. You're still doing it. You went to the shaman, didn't you? And now you've come to me, and now you want help. She goes, you can't have a foot you can't be a follower of Jesus and continue in that old pagan way. You can't do it. And she was very specific with them. That I didn't just translate this Bible for you so you could read it and it just be stories. No, it's your life. This is what your life is now in Christ. And I translated this Bible so that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Stop being entangled by this old way. And she was very, I mean, the way she talked to them was not like, hey, I'm just going to let you know about this. No, she was very specific with them about that. And I found that very interesting. And that's exactly what Paul is telling these people in Corinth. You got to leave that old life. And then we're going to read from uh, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, where Paul again is talking about something that's happened during one of these gatherings that's gotten back to him. And he's going, I can't believe this is going on during communion. Listen to what he says. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together... It is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And I'm going to stop right there for a minute. So you see what's happening? They have come together as a church to take communion, but it sounds like they also added in, well, let's have a potluck or let's have a, you know, everybody carry in your dinner. We've done those before in the church. But Paul is saying what's happening is some people aren't even there yet and some people are eating your own dinners before you decided when you were going to do communion and it's making other people feel awkward. Some people are not as fortunate as others and some of y'all are bringing a fancy dinner and they don't have anything to eat and it's not, it's not being unified and that's not what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be about. So he's getting on them about that. And then he says, 
Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So Paul, again, is very specific about this is for something that's so holy and important. We don't try to spin in all these other things. You need to understand what it is. Now, notice there's three things. First of all, you're you're having a participation in this. And we're going to do this after the sermon. We do it every Sunday. There's a participation in coming together in the body of Christ as the body of Christ. We are participating in the body of Christ, his body and his blood, but it's also as the body of Christ. And he says you should examine yourselves before and during while you're participating in it. But he also says whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. We are remembering. We are looking back. We are looking back and proclaiming that Jesus' death was for me. It was for you. It's for every human that ever lived. His death was for us. And we're looking back and proclaiming his death. We're announcing it. We're declaring it and make it known. That's why we take communion, because of Jesus' death for us. And then he says, until he comes. So there's that participation, there's that proclamation, and then there's this anticipation until he comes. We anticipate when we take the Lord's Supper that we're looking forward to the day when Jesus comes back to earth. They remember that Jesus said, I will raise after three days, and he did. And he told us that he would come back, and he will. And when he comes back, just as he was resurrected, he will bring about this consummation of the kingdom of God. This world's broken, isn't it? We know that. But when Jesus comes back, we anticipate when we take communion that he's going to come back to earth, and everything's going to be brought and made right. The kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdom of God. And he promises that. So we should anticipate that as we participate in communion. Now, beyond the New Testament letters and texts that I've read some of those, we also know from the early church writings. And when I say early church writings, well, those apostles made Jesus followers. And those Jesus followers had leaders. And those leaders told about Jesus to everybody else. They had communion together for years. And so that tradition kept going on and on through the, through the centuries. And so church leaders or disciples were, were made from those missionary journeys. And the church spread throughout the whole world. We're sitting here today because of that being practiced. People spread the word of God. Now, Justin Martyr was a disciple um, in the second century of uh, or the first century of Polycarp, and you may not know who these guys are, but Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John, and so John discipled him, and then he discipled Justin Martyr, and in 150 A.D., which is 150 years after Jesus had resurrected, he wrote this. 
And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray, and as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought, and the president in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability, and the people assent, saying, Amen, and there is a distribution to each, and a participation of that over which thanks have been given, and to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. So that's 150 years into the church, and you see they're practicing on the first day of the week, they're praying, they're taking the emblems, and even people that weren't there, it says the deacons were taking communion to people in their homes who couldn't be there to participate in it. So that's only very shortly after Jesus. Alexander Campbell, who was a leader in the Restoration Movement, which our church here is a part of, writes in 1835 about communion. This was in our country. He says, Upon the loaf and upon the cup of the Lord, in letters which speak not to the eye, but to the heart of every dispute, is inscribed, When this you see... Remember me, talking about the the bread and the wine. Indeed, the Lord says to each disciple when he receives the symbols into his hand, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And so we have a history of more than 2,000 years of faithful people all over the world coming together who trusted Jesus as their Savior, and they come together proclaiming, anticipating, and participating in the Lord's Supper. And that's what we do. Now, please understand and hear me clearly on this. Just because we do this here, I am not saying and we are not saying that churches that don't take it every week are doing it wrong and we're the only one. That is not what we're saying. We just have shared that our faith tradition believes and has believed in the past that we should uh, should practice what we see in that early church and that we read about in the New Testament and that's why we do it. But we're not casting judgment on any churches. And people often say this, and you may have heard this, yeah, but if you do it every week... It becomes old and commonplace, and it's just not that important anymore. Now, that could be true, right? But I say that's on us, that's on you, that's on me as an individual to make it special every time I do it. Now, I could say, yeah, you know, that's true, so I've stopped saying I love you to my wife and kids because it's going to get old and they won't like it. It'll become commonplace. No, I'm going to risk that I'm saying it too much, and I'll risk that I'm taking communion uh, a little too often because I don't know about y'all, but every week I need to be reminded that that cross is what saves, what Jesus did on that cross is what saves me. And there's sin in my life every day of every week that I need to be reminded of that, that I am cleansed because of Jesus. And I need that reminder. And so that's why we do it, and it's, it's important. Um, most of us, when we don't do things, we, you know, memory, like I started out with, is very, very important. And we lose things. We lose our keys. We lose our cell phones. We lose our wallet. There was a a study done, and uh, most of us are prone to misplacing things, but this is the study. Don't get mad at me, guys, but this is what it says. It's not surprising that men are twice as likely to lose their phones than women. I don't. That's just what the study says. And one study concluded that the average person misplaces nine things a day and spends an average of 15 minutes looking for those things. And y'all are laughing because it's true, isn't it? 
How many times have you found stuff under your seat in your car all the time? Oh, no, no. And we go crazy. We get ready to go, and we're going, oh, I don't have my, I don't have my wallet. I'm okay. Whatever. We, always, we lose things. So why does this happen? What is the psychology? What is the science behind losing things? Why do we forget? I know I need my cell phone every day. I know I need my keys, all that stuff. How do I do that? And they says it come, this study says it comes down to a breakdown of attention and memory. When we misplace our belongings, we fail to activate the part of our brain responsible for encoding what we're doing. That means we're doing it so fast that we forget to encode. Where did I put that? Where did I do with that? Where did I put that last thing that I had? Because, you know, when, when you lose something, people go, when's the last time you had it? Well, if I remembered, I wouldn't be asking you, you know, but we do that. We say that. But they say the hippocampus part of our brain is the part of our brain is responsible for taking what is called like a snapshot uh, uh, and preserving the memory of, in a set of neurons that can be activated later. So it's a snapshot, it's in there, and then it, I can come back to it later and go, oh, that's where I left my keys or my phone or whatever it is. And one of the ways we can improve our memory is through practicing mindfulness. And we do this by stepping back, calming our thoughts, and focusing on being present in the moment. Now, that's just psychology and science. They're not even talking about the Lord's Supper, but Jesus knew that, didn't he? And so he's saying that very thing. We need to step back. We need to calm our thoughts. We need to be focused in the present and looking back on what he did for us and how that makes a difference in our lives. And I find it interesting that Jesus instituted this special memorial with things that can be found anywhere in the world. You can find bread and juice or some kind of liquid anywhere in the world, right? So it doesn't matter where you are, you can take communion. Um, bread or wine or juice or whatever's available. A few years ago, um, I was doing campus ministry in Florida, and I took a group of students and others to um, Haiti on a mission trip. They had just had some, a series of, uh, of hurricanes there, and we were helping repair some projects and stuff. And so one of these ladies from a local church that went on the trip with us, she had packed her big suitcase with tons of Welch's grape juice. And I was like, what is that for? She said, well, I'm going to give it to the churches there so that they can have Welch's grape juice to take communion. So she opened it up, and she was showing the missionary that was guiding us, and he says, please don't give that to them. And she was like, what? I brought all of this in my suitcase from Florida. I mean, what do you mean don't give it to them? He goes, because you're going to make them dependent on Welch's grape juice in Haiti, and they don't have Welch's grape juice in Haiti. And if they do need to get it, they're not going to be able to get it, and then they're going to be calling you and saying, you need to send us more Welch's grape juice from Florida. And she said, they need to understand that they need to find something in their culture and in their, in their town that they can use to participate in the Lord's Supper. And it doesn't need to be like we do it in the States. It needs to be what they do in Haiti. And I was blown away by that explanation. I'd never thought about that before because at first I was like, oh, man, she's going to be, she's already offended by this. But he didn't care. He's like, I would rather offend you to know the truth than to offend all these people and try to get them thinking, oh, you've got to do it like we do it in America. And it wasn't. So I've heard that there was some kind of a drink in Haiti that they used that's red, and they figured that out, and they came up with some kind of crackers, and that's how they did communion, not being dependent on them. And on Sunday, July 30th, when Mike and I were in um, New Guinea, we went forward and took communion with those folks there. And you know what it was? It was a piece of coconut, a little piece of coconut. That was the bread. And then there, they had little plastic cups like us. I don't know where they got them, but they had them. And we took a cup of coconut um, water. That was their juice. And you know what? I knew what it stood for, so it didn't matter if it was Welch's grape juice, 
It didn't matter if it was in a gold tray. It didn't matter if somebody handed it to me. I walked forward and did it. But it still had very, very meaning, was very, very meaningful to me because I was taking it with these people across the world that were my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm telling you, they walked way far from where they were sitting to go all the way up to take communion. It was very, very special. One observation about communion that I've wondered about was how did Jesus do it with his disciples that night? Now, we don't know exactly sure, but we do know that he took a cup, right? And we think it was probably like a chalice. And he took that chalice and he broke the bread in hand to him. And then he took that chalice and he said, drink from it all. And I'm assuming they passed the chalice around. Now, many of y'all, like I have, I've been in a church before. My grandmother was Episcopalian, my grandparents. And I remember going every summer for a couple of weeks. And we would go to this amazing church in Columbus, Georgia that was so beautiful. And we would walk up to this altar and we would kneel on the kneeling mitt. Some of y'all are shaking your head, you know what I'm talking about. And you would hold out your hands, and you would wait for the priest to come and put bread in your hands. And then he would come along with this silver chalice, and he would let you drink some of the wine, you know. And then he would take a, a, a handkerchief and wipe it off to get the germs off, and then he would hand it to the next person. So we all did that, and then you went back to your seat. So my question was, when did we start using the little cup thing? Because I'm pretty sure Jesus and them didn't have disposable cups at the Last Supper. You know, when, when did that happen? That always fascinates me how um, that happened. Well, it's interesting that we don't know the specifics, but we do know that in the 1860s, we started getting this scientific evidence, especially from Europe, that the idea that diseases are caused by what? Germs. And germs can be passed on our hands and our mouths. And this became all the kind of the, oh, this is the, this is the main story. That all of this stuff is these microscopic hostile agents enter your body through objects in your environment and make you sick. And so the germ theory was really going around at that time uh, in the treatment of diseases. And it was very suddenly clear to go after diseases, you have to go after germs. And so at the time, this lady that is, is writing about this, she's a historian on medical and, and things like this. She says, at the time the germ theory was introduced to your average American, the leading causes of death were still infectious diseases. And people paid attention because they didn't want to die and they didn't want to see their family or relatives die. And a motley crew of physicians, political activists, entrepreneurs, and religious crusaders took it on themselves to go after germs and got everybody aware of it. And these sanitarians targeted kissing was a possible source of it, and, and contamination, among other things. And then in 1888, a medical journal, one doctor went after what he called the poison chalice in churches. That's where people were getting all these diseases. Now, we laugh about that, but let's go back three years. What were we freaking out over? We just now started passing the cups again because we were freaking out about getting germs right so it's still the but that's where it came from i think that's fascinating now i'm glad this is recorded because i am not saying that to be close to the new testament first century church we should start doing the chalice again i'm not saying that i just find it fascinating in history to look at why did somebody do something in this season and then over here in this season we do it completely different why is that so i find it fascinating so that's all i'm saying that's where we came to that so I'm very grateful to be a part of a church that takes communion every Sunday. I need that. I think most people need that. It's, an it's the most important element that we do. Now, Bonnie and our praise team leading us in worship is very important for worship. We need that. Hearing a sermon is important. We need to hear God's word. Praying is important. We need to pray to God. But the most important thing we do every Sunday, y'all, 
is communion, is remembering the Lord's death for us. That's what we really come together for, and that's what's so important. I want to close with this illustration. So I ask you, what was your most memorable communion that you ever took? And this is mine. A few years ago, I was attending an Episcopal wedding, and I was um, at this wedding, and, and at some point in the service, I realized they're going to call everybody up to the altar, and everybody that's here for the wedding is going to take communion. I thought, that's really cool. I've never taken communion at a wedding before. So uh, I was sitting next to a guy that I, I kind of knew, but I didn't know him very, very well, just on the surface. But I did know this about him. This person was involved in something in his life, and this wasn't just a rumor. No, I really knew for sure. He was involved in something in his life that was clearly a sin according to God's word, and I knew that. But something interesting happened. He was sitting next to me at the wedding, and then all of a sudden we get called down to the altar and I find myself at the altar with my hands outstretched for the priest to give me the bread and the cup on my knees and he's right there beside me and I'm going we're no different here just because my sin is maybe different than his it's still sin we are absolutely equal right here as we would say at the foot of the cross I need that forgiveness. He needs that forgiveness. Everybody that was on that altar with us needed Jesus' forgiveness. And there was just a, a very kind of revealing moment to me by the Holy Spirit that I too was a sinner needing the body and the blood of Jesus for forgiveness as we both knelt with our hands extended waiting for those symbols that represented the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. I thought we may be very diverse in our lives. We may be very diverse in our backgrounds and sins that we commit, but we are still sinners, and here we are one, unified in realizing our need for Jesus' body and blood to save us and to forgive us and to present us to God the Father as reconciled and restored. So you can imagine why that's my favorite or most memorable um, communion that I've ever taken. And so this morning, we're getting ready to do that as part of our service. And again, we like to remind people each week that um, you don't have to be a member of this church. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a part of the body of Christ, we invite you to participate in this. And you know what? There may be some of you today that say, you know what, I'm just not feeling like I should take it today. And that's okay. But one of the things we learned in New Guinea was, is, is one night one of the preachers was preaching, and I didn't understand the language, but his son, who was a photographer, was nice enough to come and explain to me what his dad was preaching on. And he was telling those folks in New Guinea that some of them had, because they felt like they weren't worthy of taking uh, communion, they just weren't doing it, and they got out of the habit of doing it. And he was encouraging them to remember that you don't come because you deserve it. You come because what? You need it. And he was encouraging them to not get out of the habit of taking communion. And that was just really interesting to not know what he was saying, but then all of a sudden that's what he's telling them, some of the same things that we need to hear as well. So this morning, I encourage everybody to participate in that this morning. It's an act of worship. It's us communing with God. And so we're getting ready to do that. Um, but if you have a decision to make this morning to name Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we want to offer that opportunity as well. Or if you're looking for a church home and we try to participate and practice what was in that early church. We're not perfect at that for sure, but we certainly try to. But if you have a decision you want to make this morning, I'll be right here to try to walk you through that. But for the rest of us, we're going to really try to prepare our hearts as we really understand why we take communion and how important that is.